Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay. The Bowery Boys, episode 204, The Cotton Club, The Aristocrat of Harlem. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with the tale of the Cotton Club the most famous nightclub of the Prohibition era, and a place that almost seems mythic to many today due to the iconic talents who performed at its two locations, the first in Harlem and then the second one in Midtown Manhattan. The Cotton Club wasn't a smoky lounge of the type Billie Holiday would have sung in or a traditional performance venue like the Apollo Theater. The Cotton Club was a big-room late-night supper club well-dressed socialites and celebrities sipping from that forbidden champagne, listening to the profound and saucy sounds of jazz as beautiful dancing girls in sultry costumes vamped in the background. But this isn't your standard adoring story of a classic New York landmark, as you often have heard on this show. The Cotton Club was owned by one of America's most ruthless gangsters, and the stark prejudices of American life, of New York life, were strictly in force here. This is a place where black entertained white, where racial segregation was a selling point, where the luxurious decor very elegantly reminded people of their place in society. This was high-class Harlem during Prohibition, where downtowners dabbled in uptown glamour, only to return home in the mornings. And yet, some of the world's most famous musicians debuted here, as did a few iconic songs. And it's for their stories that we turn now to 142nd Street and Lenox Avenue, to the second floor home of the most legendary nightclub in New York, the Cotton Club. Thank <laughs> you. 
The story of the Cotton Club begins not with a musician or a gangster. It starts with a boxer. Jack Johnson was one of the greatest athletes of the early 20th century and certainly the most famous African-American in the world one century ago. A heavyweight fighter of superlative skill. Famed sports journalist Nat Fleischer said, quote, He possessed everything a champion could hope for. Punch, speed, brains, cleverness, boxing ability, and sharp shooting. But Johnson's fame had put a target on his back. He had most famously humiliated a white boxer in the ring in 1910 to win the heavyweight championship. And he was eventually charged for the unbelievable sin of crossing state lines with his white fiance, charged via the Mann Act, ostensibly for sex trafficking, but used in the Jim Crow era to persecute men like Johnson. He eventually served time in 1920 for a violation of the Mann Act. When he got out of Leavenworth Prison, with his best days in the ring behind him, Johnson needed a project to restore his fame and get his finances back on track. And for this, he headed to Harlem. The Douglas Theater was a rather unsuccessful stage, built in 1918 at 142nd Street and Lenox Avenue a building that just happened to have a large second-floor dance hall of the type one might waltz upon or perhaps shimmy to a bit of ragtime. Johnson, who had actually owned or been connected to a few nightclubs in Chicago years earlier, now leased the second floor and turned it into a supper club called Club Deluxe. It didn't keep that name for very long, however, nor did Johnson remain the principal proprietor because Harlem was about to become the hottest destination in Manhattan. The 18th Amendment went into operation on January 16, 1920, effectively ending the sale of alcohol in the United States. But of course, we know prohibition meant only the legal elimination of spirits. A mob-run network of alcohol manufacturing and distribution soon rose to meet the demands of non-teetotaling New Yorkers, and soon it seemed every dank corner in Manhattan had spawned a speakeasy or a gin mill. Prohibition reinforced the power of the mob, who had the resources to coerce corruptible law enforcement to, on occasion, look the other way. And so comes into the story one of gangland's most vicious figures, Oni Madden. Madden was born in Ireland in 1891, but his brutality and street tough was formed on the streets of Hell's Kitchen as a member of the Gophers Gang. We mentioned them in our Hell's Kitchen podcast from last year, as some of you might recall. He'd earned the nickname Killer Madden before the age of 18. In the winter of 1914, his henchmen brutally killed a man from a rival gang called the Hudson Dusters, in a bar at 41st Street and 8th Avenue. Madden was sent up the river to Sing Sing for 20 years, but managed to get out on parole in 1923. He emerged as a major player in the New York liquor racket, scooping up control in nightclubs throughout the city, including Johnson's establishment here, Club Deluxe. Yes, so to recap, Johnson who went to prison for the egregious crime of carousing with women of a different race, relinquishes his club to Madden, who went to prison for a brutal gang assassination. 
Welcome to New York City, 1923. By the early 1920s, Harlem had become a thriving African-American neighborhood, but Madden's Club would not be for black patrons. Jazz music was a new phenomenon, pretty much. In terms of a mainstream appeal, it had become a thing ever since the first jazz record was recorded and released in 1917. While that recording artist, the Dixieland Jazz Band, J-A-S-S, the Dixieland Jazz Band was a white ensemble, the heart and soul of jazz music was obviously in Harlem, where black and white musicians played together. Jazz became the rage, the rage of the jazz age, because it embodied something fresh and something out of bounds. And exactly at the same time that America put a cork back in its bottle of booze. The mob had alcohol to sell. Madden, in fact, had his own special beer called Madden's Number One, brewed down on 10th Avenue with his name brazenly on the label. It's believed that Madden himself gave his club its new name, the Cotton Club. It was to be top-notch, a late-night hotspot that bested even the houses of Times Square and Columbus Circle. With late shows, at midnight and 2 in the morning, it could seat anywhere between 600 and 700 people, depending on the night, arranged in a wide horseshoe pattern, facing into a dance floor and a small stage for the musicians. The Cotton Club was a sexier uptown version of these heady midtown supper clubs, and soon other proprietors with varying degrees of mob connection soon opened other establishments in Harlem like Connie's Inn at 7th Avenue and 131st Street and Small's Paradise at 7th Avenue and 135th Street. This neighborhood where all these clubs opened, these lounges and nightclubs and speakeasies, well, it all took the name Jungle Alley as a sort of nighttime playground for residents and wayward visitors alike. According to writer Lloyd Morris, quote, Long after the cascading lights of Times Square had flickered out, those boulevards were ablaze. Until nearly dawn, the subway kiosks poured crowds onto the sidewalks. Now, of course, you may be pondering upon the very name of the Cotton Club, as you should. It was selected by Madden to remind you of the good old South, or more explicitly, with the way things used to be. If you didn't get that from the name, you were instantly reminded once you walked inside and took a gander at the decor by Florin Ziegfeld's stage designer and the artistic director at the Metropolitan Opera, Joseph Urban. Murals about the walls depicted cotton fields and crude slave houses, while the stage was made to appear like the front porch of a grand plantation. This was not a club to make African Americans feel especially comfortable. The patrons were white only, the talent on stage largely black musicians and dancers. The Cotton Club had simply codified this segregation onto the very walls, reminding its patrons of the separation. As Langston Hughes later wrote, quote, White people began to come to Harlem in droves. For several years, they packed the expensive cotton club on Lenox Avenue. But I was never there. 
because the Cotton Club was a Jim Crow club for gangsters and moneyed whites, unquote. And by the way, I should add, this was not just the Cotton Club, but in many hotels and restaurants around the city were practicing the same sort of segregation. Many years later, in fact, something called the Plantation Club opened a short distance from the Cotton Club with similar decoration. Madden, of course, made sure that that club was shut down rather quickly. In the early years, the patrons of the Cotton Club could grab a cab after a Broadway show, hit the midnight program to hear Fletcher Henderson and his orchestra, enjoy a late-night steak or lobster. Kind of gives me acid reflux just thinking about that. And then, of course, to crack into the booze, whether it be Madden's own, or of course you could bring some in for a small fee. The front man at the club the individual unbesmirched by the mob underworld, was Walter Brooks, who had just directed the smash musical on Broadway called Shuffle Along, written and performed by African Americans. But if you were venturing up to Harlem late night during the Prohibition era, you were probably drunk enough to want to see a few mobsters. Madden himself was sometimes in the building, often on the rooftop, tending to his pigeons or in a back room playing poker. Most likely, you got a gander at the visage of Big Frenchy Demange, Madden's lieutenant, who made sure the door policy stayed in place. Not to say that the club didn't repeatedly get shut down over the years. From June 23, 1925, quote, Owen Oney Madden, a notorious gangster and gunman, turned up again yesterday in a liquor case. He was named in a federal court as secretary of the Cotton Club, which Judge Francis A. Winslow padlocked yesterday for three months, unquote. And yet, every single time, the Cotton Club reopened. That is, I guess, the old Madden charm, I guess. The club had a sterling reputation, partially due to radio broadcasts from the dance floor, and Big Frenchie kept such a tight ship here that dozens of celebrities swung through, mostly on Sunday nights, which were nicknamed Celebrity Nights, when they were sure to be seen and written about. Mae West, Jimmy Durante, even the mayor of New York himself, Jimmy Walker. And let's not forget Edwina Cynthia Annette Mountbatten, a.k.a. England's Lady Mountbatten, who gave the club its famous nickname, The Aristocrat of Harlem. But if you're looking to royalty to give a little prestige to the Cotton Club, don't ask a lady. Look instead to a duke. Edward Kennedy Ellington was 28 years old when he was first employed at the Cotton Club. He was born in the spring of 1899 in Washington, D.C., and wrote his first song, Soda Fountain Rag, at 15 years old while actually working at a soda fountain. He wasn't just a talented young musician, he was also rather debonair for his age. According to Terry Teachout in his biography of Ellington, quote, He offered multiple explanations on how he acquired his lifelong nickname, but most of them point to his having been dubbed Duke by a childhood friend, partly because of his princely manner, 
the Duke of Ellington's name would have been known to his playmates, and partially because his mother dressed him so stylishly. Unquote. But it was the grace he brought to ragtime and jazz music that got him into New York clubs by the 1920s. Duke was working at the Club Kentucky in Times Square in 1925 when he was discovered by music publisher Irving Mills. It was through Mills that Oni Madden heard of Duke Ellington, and he wanted him so badly for the Cotton Club that Madden's men actually strong-armed him out of another engagement in Philadelphia. When the theater owner there refused to release Duke from his contract, Madden's men reportedly said, quote, Be big or you'll be dead. Dancing to music by the Duke continues, and the next invitation to the dance comes under the title, If You Were In My Place. Duke Ellington and his orchestra debuted at the Cotton Club on December 4th, 1927. This is one of those classic artist-venue pairings that has entered music legend. The Cotton Club made Duke Ellington's career, and Duke made the Cotton Club, performing both the late-night shows and, of course, all the dancing in between. The orchestra played the hits of the day and original music by the Cotton Club's stable of white songwriters like Dorothy Fields and Jimmy McHugh. Those were for the shows, but in the interim dance floor sections, he was able to play some of his own original music, some of it broadcast out to listeners on a weekly program on WHN radio station of the Ridgewood Times newspaper. Before the Duke gets away from us, I want you to latch on to a medley of your own tunes, too. Now, which one are you going to do first? Well, will do the swing session. Swing session first? All right. Let's so I won't forget it. the mistake. Now, Ellington was no wallflower, but at the Cotton Club, not only was he faced with this enshrined segregation, but also with interactions with the criminal underworld. He even had his own bodyguard paid for by a gangster named Jerry Sullivan. The story of how Duke and Mr. Sullivan met is told in an autobiography by jazz clarinetist Barney Begard. Quote, I remember one night a little guy came in with some blonde gal. He came around to the piano and said, Hey, play Singing in the Rain. Duke just nodded his head and we played four or five more numbers and still no Singing in the Rain. He came to Duke the second time and said, I asked you for Singing in the Rain, damn it. I'll grab you by your coat and choke the hell out of you. Herman Stark, the manager of the Cotton Club, saw him up there and came over and asked what was wrong. I'll get him to play it. You just you sit down and cool off, said Stark. He came back to Duke and said, Don't you know who that guy is? And Duke said, No, and I don't care who in hell he is either. That guy is Jerry Sullivan. He's the one been making all the news for doing a stretch for Frenchy Domain, the gangster, said Stark. Next thing you know... We were playing Singing in the Rain for a whole hour, and it sounded mighty sweet to us, too. You better not fool with those gangsters in those days. Unquote. By the time Duke and the band left the Cotton Club in 1931, he had become a recording and film star and launched an incredible tour of the United States and Europe that would cement his status as one of the biggest stars in the world, defining the sounds of swing and big band. He would often come back to the Cotton Club, but to a very different environment. So who do you replace Duke Ellington with? 
Well, when I come back, we'll focus on the rest of the talent of the Cotton Club, some very famous names and others who have been unfairly forgotten. Also, what happens to the Cotton Club when you can finally drink alcohol, you know, anywhere? The Cotton Club's move to Midtown as the jazz age dries up after this commercial break. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And now, back to the jazz. In February of 1931, another of Irving Mills' songwriting discoveries, Cab Calloway, took over from Duke Ellington at the Cotton Club. One month later, Calloway entered the studio to record the song that would become his biggest hit. Folks, here's a story about Minnie the Moocher. She was a red-hot hoochie-coocher. She was the roughest, toughest frail, but Minnie had a heart as big as a whale. Hoodie-ho, hoodie-ho! In Calloway's own words, quote, My manager, Irving Mills, and I were sitting around the old cotton club in New York, tossing phrases at each other, and Minnie the Moocher came up. We banged out the lyrics and melody on the spot and tried it out a couple nights later. It went over big, unquote. As with Ellington, Cab Calloway used his stint at the cotton club to boost his popularity. He was helped by improved live broadcasts, this time by NBC, a variety of sold-out concerts throughout the city, and of course a much higher profile for the various Cotton Club reviews that were now being mounted here. The so-called Cotton Club parades, which were these musical review events, were actually rivaling those on Broadway at this point, and many of Broadway's songwriters were now taking a ride up to Harlem to debut their premier tunes. The main songwriters during the 1930s were the team of Ted Kohler and Harold Arlen, who stitched together songs in such parades that were called Brown Sugar, 
Rhythm Mania, and in 1932, a show that debuted another classic to the world. The show and the song were called I've Got the World on a String. Here's the Duke Ellington version. The shows needed to get flashier, more elaborate, because things were changing in New York City by this time. By 1932, Oni Madden was no longer a regular presence at the Cotton Club. In fact, he was actually back at Sing Sing. Although, with somebody like Madden, this hardly cuts off his connection to the New York underworld. He would eventually flee to Hot Springs, Arkansas, where he would live for the rest of his life, living into his mid-70s. It's appropriate that he leaves the story at this particular time because, really, the Cotton Club's reason for being to sell Madden's illicit liquor, well, it's about to be wiped out. On December 5th, 1933, the 21st Amendment of the U.S. Constitution wiped out the 18th Amendment, effectively repealing prohibition, bringing the champagne back out into the open. That same year, Harold Arlen wrote a song for the latest Cotton Club Parade to be performed by one of the biggest black music stars of the day, longtime recording artist Ethel Waters. In the words of Waters from her own autobiography, quote, They had a new number that Harold Arlen had written. They were using a lot of mechanical devices to get storm effects. It was a wonderful number. But after listening to it, I told them that the piece should have more to do with human emotions and should be expressed that way instead of with noise-making machines to interpret the rumblings and rattlings of old Mother Nature. But let me take the lead sheet home, I suggested. This song should be given a dramatic ending. I'm going to see if I can't give it that. But if I do, I will only want to sing it at one show a night. I wanted to give it everything I got. Unquote. Six years later, Arlen would, of course, write the music to the film The Wizard of Oz, featuring the song Over the Rainbow. But on this evening, in 1933, the world heard Arlen's first weather-related hit as Waters entered the spotlight and did indeed give it everything she had. Don't know why There's no sun up in the sky Stormy weather Since my man and I ain't together Keeps raining all the time Now, you may be more familiar with the later version of this song sung by another incredible vocalist who also got their start at the Cotton Club, Lena Horn. But she got her start not in front of a microphone, but in the chorus line. And here's where I want to focus for a minute on the dancers of the Cotton Club, which were perhaps as crucial, if not more so, than the music. I mean, after all, for instance, who goes to the Radio City Christmas Spectacular for the songs? You go for the Rockettes. Every Cotton Club floor show, every Cotton Club parade had a line of beautiful dancers. But it was all in the casting call for these women that a different sort of prejudice crept in. For although all the dancers were African-American women, for the first years of the Cotton Club at least, they only hired women with lighter skin. Not only did this limit the number of quality dancers they had, 
But it made a very peculiar statement that not only could black women not frequent the club as patrons, but that even those who were hired had to exhibit a certain unrealistic uniformity and the presentation all nestled within that horrible set dressing depicting a southern plantation. And even though they were so crucial to these shows, they weren't exactly treated well either. They couldn't use the regular bathrooms for the customers, and so they were all crammed into this one poorly ventilated dressing room. Lena, Lena Horn, got a job here in 1933 at age 16. It was a vigorous experience, to say the least, as she said, quote, I was no longer a child. I was working in a line at the Cotton Club in Harlem, and that kind of life grows you up fast, unquote. Now, if a 16-year-old girl in a saucy chorus line shocks you a little bit, let me tell you about the Nicholas Brothers, the dancing duo who debuted at the Cotton Club in 1932 when older brother Fayard was 18 and his younger brother Harold was 11. They would be among the most famous acts associated with the Cotton Club. Here's a little dancing sound from the Nicholas Brothers in the 1943 musical called Stormy Weathers, which actually featured Lena Horne's version of the song. Obviously, you'll need to run to YouTube and actually see that in action. It is probably one of the most incredible dancing scenes that I have ever seen in a movie. Well, by the mid-1930s, Harlem had lost a little bit of its luster for those fickle midtown crowds, owing, of course, to the ready availability of liquor, but also to some of those racial barriers easing somewhat. Even the Cotton Club had begun allowing patrons of any race into the club in its final years. In order to justify those big shows filled with music and dancing girls, the Cotton Club had to come to the patrons. And so, on February 16, 1936, the Harlem Cotton Club closed for good and moved downtown to Broadway, to Broadway and 48th Street to be exact, opening on September 24th with a review which featured dancer Bill Bojangles Robinson and the return of Cab Calloway in a program that was the largest show in Cotton Club history. And at first, the audiences did arrive to the dinner show, the supper show, and the 2 a.m. show, where you could scarf down a steak sandwich for $2.25. If that sounds cheap, let me remind you that in today's dollars, that's about... 40 bucks. And may we pause just briefly, ladies and gentlemen, to remind you that the Duke is on the air and that Columbia is taking you for your dancing pleasure to the Cotton Club on the Great White Way in New York City to bring you the music of Duke Ellington and his orchestra, which continues now with Ivy Anderson coming back to the microphone to sing On the Sunny Side of the Street. Many of the Cotton Club's alumni returned now and then to perform at the Broadway venue, including Duke Ellington and his orchestra and the Nicholas Brothers. Among the most notable of the newer performers here at this downtown venue were the Dandridge sisters, who were really just two sisters, Vivian and Dot, and their friend Etta. They soon became regulars of the club. The sisters eventually disbanded in 1940, and Dot began going by her regular name 
Dorothy Dandridge and would become a successful actress and eventually the first African-American woman to be nominated for an Academy Award in 1954 for Carmen Jones. She even kept a little souvenir of the Cotton Club with her. In 1942, she married Harold Nicholas, the younger of the two Nicholas brothers. But by that time, the good times at the Cotton Club were over. They even tried in 1939 and 1940 to stay open during the summer to capture some of the crowds who were arriving in New York for the World's Fair out in Flushing Meadow. Describing the second year of the World's Fair edition of the Cotton Club Parade, the New York Times on May 12, 1940 said, quote, At the head of this frolic, which boasts some seasoned talent culled from the variety realm, are Buck and Bubbles, those infatigable Nubian performers, displaying their usual rounds of tricks with some degree of freshness. And also to be seen are Tip, Tap, and Toe, who will cause your ears to ache and your eyes to marvel at their intricate tapology on a drum. June Richmond, a lady of generous dimensions, singing the usual ballads in stentorian fashion. And Anise and Allen, a nimble pair adept in serious as well as in the frantic mode of dancing." Unquote. This was the final show at the Cotton Club, which closed on June 10th, 1940. Sadly, the former locations of the two Cotton Clubs are much transformed today. There is, however, another establishment in Harlem that calls itself the Cotton Club, which is located on Harlem's west side. But the original location of the Cotton Club on Lexington and 142nd Street is totally gone, replaced with the Minisink Townhouse, which is the current home of the New York City Mission Society. The Broadway location actually had an interesting post-life as the Latin Quarter nightclub, owned by a man named Lou Walters, whose teenage daughter, Barbara Walters, would grow up to have a notable career. Today, the Renaissance Hotel stands on the very spot of the former Cotton Club. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this music-filled journey to the Prohibition and Depression eras of New York via the history of the Cotton Club and all of that fantastic music that was threaded throughout the whole show. Please come to our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have some photos of the dancers and some of the icons and, of course, lots of videos so that you can see some of these people in action and you can listen to and enjoy this music. I'll also have a list of all the songs that I used in this show. I'll have them on the blog. As always, you can also check us out on Facebook for some more fun stuff, also on Twitter and on Instagram. We'd like to thank our Patreon members who have been instrumental in improving the show, and we greatly appreciate your support. And of course, if you are a Patreon member, you get extra stuff. So for instance, last episode's extra feature that was tied in to the Nikola Tesla show, well, I had a dramatic reading from a chapter of Nikola Tesla's autobiography. He has a really unique way of saying things. And as I said at the very, very top of the show, our book, the Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York comes out in one month. So we're so excited. We're going to have a lot of events tied into it. In fact, our first one on June 2nd at the Museum of the City of New York is already booked. You can go get your tickets. Uh, check out the blog for all the different news items uh, about events that we'll be doing throughout the summer. Terribly excited about this, if you can't tell. So check all that information out. 
Thank you very much for listening to this show. I mean, I'm such a huge fan of all this music since I was in high school. And so it was an absolute pleasure to be able to dig into some of the stories of where this music really came from, where some of these famous songs came from. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.